want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're with us this morning. Um, if you're a guest with us, I want to especially welcome you, and we're honored to have you spend a Sunday morning with us. And if I, had, if I haven't had the chance to meet you um, kind of face-to-face with a handshake, um, I would love to do that. So if you have time after uh, the service, I invite you to stick around so um, I can meet you face-to-face. Um, um, as, as, uh, thank you, Madison, for reading. As she read, we are still in um, Ecclesiastes. We have five or six weeks to go, and then we'll wrap up about the time um, kind of the fall is kicking back off. And when, you're, when I'm setting up Ecclesiastes, um, or really any sermon series, part of, the, part of outlining the book is to listen to some other people about how they've handled it as far as they've been teaching and preaching through um, this book. In chapter 7... Um, as a lot of pe- teachers and preachers get to chapter 7, it just kind of disappears. Pe- like People like to skip chapter 7 because this chapter is one of the more difficult chapters to understand in this book, trying to figure out what in the world is Solomon trying to say. Like, what's his point? He's, he's rambling, he's meandering all over the place. We saw that last week, the first half of this chapter, and tried to make sense of some of it. Well, we find ourselves again in the same place today at the second half of chapter 7. It will feel like a bit like a part 2, but we're still trying to figure out how these things fit together. And he said, there's a few verses in here that are really strange, like, why Solomon? Would you include this? Um, so we're going to work through it today. We're going to fight through it and kind of figure out what Solomon's trying to teach us um, this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. God, we're, thank you for your, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, the way that you've revealed yourself in it, that we don't have to uh, go searching and looking around and trying to figure out who, who you are and, and what you said and what's most important to you. We have it in your word, and we're thankful for that. So I pray this morning as we look at your word, we dig in um, to this, uh, what can be confusing text. I pray you give us wisdom, you give us insight, that your spirit would speak to us through the word, to our spirit, that we'd be able to understand it. And that we wouldn't be just merely hearers of the word, but we would actually be doers of the word. That you would change us as a result of looking at your word, and that we would be different people as we leave this place. So help us to that end. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this, the, the two verses that we're going to focus on really again today and kind of build out from there are verses 13 and 14. I want to put those up on the screen, verses 13 and 14. Um, I'll just read them. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is how we ended last week's sermon with these two verses, and I think this is kind of the crescendo or the apex of this chapter. So we kind of went up to these verses, and now today we're going to come down from these verses, and the, 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 what, what Solomon's going to unpack today is coming from these two verses. They frame everything for us. And so we, let, we, we kind of left things hanging a little bit last week because Solomon has more, and we're going to get into that um, today. It's not going to be um, as clear as we probably want it, but we're going to try um, and to get to that point, I want, us to, I want to introduce you to uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Boston. Thomas Boston was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in the late uh, 1600s and the early 1700s. And biographers have described him as a man who was uh, struck with melancholy. He struggled with depression. 
He was prone to seasons of discouragement in his Christian life. He was often in poor health, had lots of um, kind of maladies in that way, but it never kept him from the pulpit. He always showed up in the pulpit to preach, and he was a prolific writer, and we have a lot of his writings um, with us today. His wife also suffered from chronic illness, and some biographers think she also struggled with some mental illness as well. But the thing that like, strikes you when you see this family the most is they had um, 10 children, and they lost um, six of them. Six of the ten children they lost in childbirth or the days thereafter. So this family knew tragedy well. And one loss was especially tragic. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, tells of this story that Boston and his, um, or the Boston family had lost um, one son already named Ebenezer, and they were, they were having another son. And when his wife gave birth to this son, they considered naming the new child Ebenezer as well. Because this name meant the Lord has helped us. And he hesitated, though, thinking that um, on the one hand, naming the boy would be a testimony of God providing another boy for them and his, his goodness and grace. But at the same time, the previous boy who was named Ebenezer died. And what if this uh, boy died too? Um, but by faith, he decided to go ahead and name his son Ebenezer, the second one. Um, yet, a few days after he was born, uh, the child became sick and he died. He lost another boy named Ebenezer. And he wrote in his memoirs this, Thomas Boston did, it pleased the Lord that he also was removed from me. And when you think of what this man was going through, for him to be able to write this, it's very Job-esque, right? Like the, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It kind of echoes of Job there. He had a keen sense of God's sovereignty, even in the midst of horrific tragedy that had struck him, that he was not unfamiliar with, that this has happened over and over and over to him and his wife. He delivered a sermon shortly before he died titled, The Crook in the Lot, where he preached on this chapter of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7. And more specifically, he looked at verse 13, where it talks about um, God making things crooked. Um, and according to Ecclesiastes, as, as Boston read it, God has given each of us a, a different situation in life. And here's a quote from him that I'll put up here from this particular sermon. There's a certain train or course of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world. And that is our lot as being allotted to us by the sovereign God. In that train or course of events, some fall out cross to us and against the grain, and these make the crook in our lot. While we are here, there will be cross events as well as agreeable ones in our lot condition. Sometimes things are softly and agreeably gliding on, but by and by there is some incident which alters that course, grates us, and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it, there's no perfection here. No lot out of heaven without a crook. And one thing I want us to see um, as it relates to this chapter and Thomas Boston is Thomas Boston lived in reality. Like he was well acquainted to the darkest corners of reality in how the things that had, the, the, the tragedies that had struck his family. And, and, and Solomon in this book has been on the same kind of quest. He wants us, above everything else, to see reality. And as Christians, above, above everyone else, we should be people that want to know reality. 
that we want to live in truth, that we want to know the truth, that we don't want to sweep things under the rug. We don't want to pretend things are better than they are. We don't want to pretend things are worse than they are. We need to be people, if anybody is in this world, we need to be people of reality. And what Solomon is telling us in these first two verses is that our reality could be crooked some seasons and it'll be straight some seasons. And all that is under the hand of God. Now, these first two verses even bring up a a, a deep philosophical question, right? Like, why do these things happen? Why do, why do things happen that are challenging? Why is there evil in the world? Why are, in, in light of who God is, why does this happen? And we must live in this tension between kind of two pillars of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. And the scriptures teach this, and it's not a comfortable tension to live in, but we need to live in the tension. And, it's, and, I, and I describe it as two pillars because I do think these are the two pillars. And sometimes, and a lot of people will, kind of in this philosophical debate, they start trying to take out one of the ends of the tension. Like, and, and, and it's a little bit easier to begin with to start to do this. And you see the temptation to do it. Like when you think of um, God's sovereignty, we're going to take that out. Because how could God, who is good, also be sovereign over the evil events that happen? So let's just kick that pillar out and not worry about God's sovereignty. And now he's just good. And we're going to focus on his goodness. Well, what about all the evil in the world that happens? Is God no longer powerful over that? Is God no longer sovereign over that? That means there's something in the world more powerful than God if he is not sovereign. And in this situation, it's evil, right? If God doesn't have any power over evil, then something is greater than God. And that is a terrifying world to live in. That there is something greater than God that is pulling the strings that is causing evil in the world. It's a terrifying place to be. But we all see the temptation, right? Because we want to focus on the goodness of God. We want to focus on that and kind of leave this other th- stuff aside. Or on the flip side, we want to kick out the pillar of God's goodness, right? We say, well, you know what? God's just sovereign. He's powerful. We're going to focus on that. He's, he's, he's kind of this judge. He's almighty. And we don't, we don't really know if he's good all the time because we see things that happen in the world that aren't all good. So if he's over everything, how can there be good coming from him if there's also evil? So he must not be good. That's also a terrifying world to live in as well. Because is God God evil then? If he's not good, he could be evil. And so now we have an all-powerful, mighty, evil God. You talk about another terrifying place to live in in this world. Terrifying. So that... That's a, that, that we don't have time to get in all the, the kind of the, the, the pushback and, and the holes in this argument. But I just want to lay that out there, that we have to be comfortable sitting in this tension of God being uh, sovereign and all powerful and also good. There's a lot of things in the middle of that tension that don't make sense, that are still a mystery to us. That we can't even go to chapter and verse in the Bible to say this is why this or that is true. And this is why evil happens at, it's all a mystery, it's difficult, but there's a tension that the Bible gives us, and we need to walk in that tension, which is a, which is a part of reality. So Solomon's starting off with a, a, a piece of reality that we really have to wrestle with, okay? So how do we deal with this reality with these things in it, this, these types of questions in it? Let's look at verse 15. Solomon, in his very straightforward way, says, In my vain life I have seen everything. Kind of back to the, the old man sitting on the porch example we gave last week, kind of, you know, just sitting back in his rocking chair thinking, I've seen it all in this vain life. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. 
And so now the first kind of, the next reality that kind of hits us in the face that Solomon wants to see is that, that, that when sin comes into the world, it, it makes things crooked, yes, but it even, it, it cloudies our view on what is crooked and what is straight. So how do we make sense of the events when something good happens to someone seemingly evil or unrighteous? And why do bad things happen to people who are seemingly righteous in our eyes or good? Right? The age-old question, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? That's, a, that's just one of these deep philosophical questions that we don't, and, and don't understand. And Solomon's puzzled by it as well. He's saying, how does this make sense? How does this happen? It just seems so random, the events that come in and out of our life. And the one thing this clearly does, it blows this idea of karma out of the water. And before you, us Christians in here say, oh yeah, we don't, we don't mess around with that karma stuff. We don't, we don't need any of that. We're, we, we believe in this more than we think, right? Like when I'm watching something on the, the TV, um, nobody watches news on the TV anymore. I about said that. Um, when I'm reading news or observing something, of some, maybe a documentary on TV, and I see a victim, I'm quick to think, like, why, why, is, why are bad things happening to that person? Of all people, why them? And then on the flip side, I think of the person that's the, the villain and whatever I'm like. I'm like, how are they still getting away with this? How are they even alive? It's so much evil. And so even I, I have that want that karma too. I think if you're being good, you should attract good things in your life. If you're bad, you will attract bad things in your life. That's karma, right? And that's what he's kind of blowing out of the water here. There's no, there's no there, there, it's random. To our human eyes, it's random what happens to good and what happens to bad people. And I think we would agree with that if we just kind of look at things that happen around us. We also have the example of Jesus. When he's with his disciples, he comes across the man born blind. And his disciples quickly go to the karma card, right? Hey, what happened to this guy? His physical ailment, they say, did he sin or his parents sin? It's one or the other, right, Jesus? And Jesus very quickly almost just dismisses that. He says, no, 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 no. Like, this happens so that God's mighty power can be put on display. That's why this happened. Just blows the, he's like, that's the wrong question. You're not asking the right question here. Although, it is a difficult question for us to wrestle with. This is the reality of the world that we live in. So I think that the wisdom that Solomon wants to have with us to have at this point is, if things are going really well for you, be thankful. Enjoy it. Give thanks to God. Don't miss it. Don't, don't think that it's you that's causing the good things coming into your life. Give credit to God where credit is due. When the, when the negative things, the bad things come into your life, right? Don't, don't um, think that it's something maybe that you've done. Like take comfort in sometimes it has nothing to do with our junk and our sin when bad things happen to us. Sometimes we bring that up on ourselves. Sometimes we do bring pain into our life through our actions. and our. And, but, but oftentimes it's just the hand that we're dealt so in those situations, take comfort that it's not anything we did. It's the, it's the crook that God has given us to walk through. Again, doesn't make it necessarily any easier, but we can take some comfort in that we didn't have anything necessarily to do that. But it's still a puzzling question. And Solomon is puzzled about why this seems so random. Verse 16, he gets into the next kind of pointer idea in our reality. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
So he's saying, as we live in this reality, there are two ways um, that we reject God in our sin. There are two ways that sin kind of comes into our lives and we reject God or even say sin against God. We can be overly righteous and we can be overly wicked. These are two ways we can um, sin against God. So we could be a wicked person or a Pharisee. And we'll take wickedness to begin with, kind of go that side of the things. Right? I think this is probably, uh, we get this, right? When someone turns their back on God, turns his back on, on, um, on his, his revelation of himself and his word, turns his back on his character, the way he's called us to live. Hey, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own decisions here. That we could be called as wickedness. That's turning our back on God. And we see that would, would fracture or put us not in good standing with God, right? Uh, but he also has this other side here that I think is more subtle to people in this room as followers of Jesus, right, um, the, which most of us are. The, this Phariseeism, right, it's adding to God's law or add, adding to the things that God, that, that, that God requires of, of us to put more out there for us to do, to achieve, to perform in order to make ourselves feel better, more accepted by God, more accepted by other people around us that we want to be accepted by. And he says both are ditches, both are, are problems when it comes to how we approach God and how we deal with our sin. Theologian John Gerstner said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. He's trying to wake us up to sometimes it's our works, our ability to try to be good people, to, to, to kind of live this life apart from God and just trust in our morality that can damn us quicker than our actually our wickedness can. And I think it's because it's subtle. It's sneaky. We can get applauded in Christian circles when we're righteous and we're holy. It's a little bit easier for that to fly under the radar than our wickedness, especially inside the church. So what do we do? If these two ways aren't the way, let's look at verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, this meaning this teaching that, I, that Solomon has just given us. And from that, withhold not your hand. Take it. Take it. I'm offering it to you. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, should avoid them, should not walk down those paths. Now, fear of God here could mean literally fear of God, the healthy fear that we have of God that we talked about a few weeks ago. But it could also mean just following him, loving him, knowing him, obeying him, like just being godly in that way. And in these two ways, that if we approach as a wicked person or a Pharisee, they'd there's no fear in God in these ways. Obviously, the wicked person doesn't fear God, um, and we kind of see that. The Pharisee doesn't fear God because they think they can create some kind of moral code that if they live up to it, it's going to put them in God's good graces or reconcile them back to God, which brings down the character of God's in his holiness. It, makes, it pulls his holiness down on a level that we can actually obtain, and that's blasphemous to do that to his character. God is holy and he is other. So when we try to, uh, uh, try to earn our righteousness from him, basically we're pulling his holiness down so that we can achieve it. And we don't fear God in that way as well. How do we, how do we develop godliness? Um, well, we are to fear him. This is what Solomon is saying here. We're to fear him and to fear um, what reality is, right? That we're sinners, that we fall short of him. That's the reality, that we can't live up to his standards, that we need something outside of ourselves to come into our lives that changes us, that causes us to want to love God, to want to know God, to want to follow God. This is godliness. This is the, 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 the good kind of righteous, righteousness that the Bible speaks of. We see this most clearly illustrated in Luke 15. 
It's the, uh, the parable that Jesus gives of um, the younger and older brother. If you remember, the younger brother um, is, is, has gone off and squandered all of his father's money and wild living and wickedness, and he comes home. He's kind of at the end of his rope. He comes home. The father welcomes him back in, throws a party, a banquet for him. My, my son's home. I've missed him. Bring him back in. Put, kill the fattened calf. Put the robe on him. Everything. The older brother's off over there thinking, wait a minute, I've been here the whole time. I haven't left you. I've been a good boy. I haven't squandered your money. I haven't lived wickedly. But really, he wasn't loving his dad in all doing all those things. He was doing it out of a self-righteous thing. He was trying to get his dad's approval by, by showing how great of a person he was. And when push came to shove, the younger brother gets home. He invites the older brother into the party. Hey, come here. Let's come celebrate your, your, your younger brother. He's lost. Now he's found. Let's party. He's been reconciled. He's back in the family. The older brother, we, just, we, we, we kind of see it there in the parable. He just stays outside. He says, no. Like, I, I, no, I'm not coming in. He doesn't deserve that. I'm the better one. I'm the one that deserved the fattened calf. I'm the one that deserves the robe because of my behavior. And it's a, it's a parable aimed at Phariseeism. And it shows us that even the, the good person can be left out of the banquet the good person can be left out of the kingdom of God. It's our repentance. It's knowing that we need a savior, knowing that we fall short, knowing that we're not good enough that allows us to actually come into relationship with God and his kingdom, not our self-righteousness. So again, Solomon, back to Solomon. He wants us to ponder the problem of sin, the reality of sin and how it affects our world. And now in verse 19, he gets deeper into it, starts to give some examples, kind of the pervasiveness of sin. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. This is just good proverbial wisdom there. Wisdom's a, wisdom's a good thing. It's strong. It's, it's, uh, it's greater than 10 rulers. And then he quickly like just chops that down and says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's like, here's what it theoretically would look like to have wisdom, but you know what? No one's righteous. No one's going to have perfect wisdom. And we're, 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 we're now at the reality of sin again. He wants us to understand the depths and gravity of our sin. Everything that he's talked about these first seven chapters, the vanity, the meaninglessness under the sun, just the, the ruminating on how rough the world is and how confusing the world is, the genesis of all of those things he's been talking about is sin. Is sin. We can trace it all back to Genesis 3 when sin came into the world. It fractured our world. It put enmity. Um, it put, put a, a battle, a conflict against us and creation, us and each other, us and ourselves. Sin like spread and it ruined everything. Now, it doesn't excuse us from fighting sin and pushing back against the darkness in the world. We're not fatalists here. But when we're talking about the reality of the world, this is what Solomon's trying to get us to understand. When we're talking about that, we have to be honest. This is, the, this is the, 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 the starting point of evil. It's the starting point of brokenness in our world. This, this verse 20 has echoes of Romans 3.10. When Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. When talking about the depravity of human beings. No one's good enough. No one's really good in using that word um, that we often like to say. We don't like this description. We don't want to be told that we're depraved. We don't like to be told we're sinful. But we have to start here if in our need to see Jesus as our Savior. It drives us to grace. It drives us to the Father. It drives us to our knees to ask for a Savior, for help in our time of need. 
It's going to get more specific here. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's a common example, illustration he gives us of, hey, people are going to say bad things about you. People are going to talk behind your back. People are going to stab you in the back. If you knew everything people were saying about you all the time, it would probably crush you. But hey, don't, he's basically saying, don't let it bother you, right? It's, it happens. It's part, of our, it's part of our broken world. And oh, by the way, you're guilty of it too. Right? You do the same thing. That's what verse 22, right? He doesn't let us play the victim card completely. He says, oh, by the way, you've probably done it just as much as people have done it to you, right? He's just, he's just laying out how depraved we are and how we can't even communicate without throwing each other under the bus. And maybe it's been a long time since you've been hurt in this way, right? All you have to do is get on Twitter and watch how people just rip each other apart, right? It happens daily on Twitter, how, how mean we can be to one another on, um, and maybe not in person, but on a social media platform. But he says, don't take it to heart. Don't listen to it. And by the way, we, we've done the same thing too. Again, he continues to drive us down to why we need a savior. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Like I couldn't get there, Solomon says. That which has been far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Like who can get there? Who can be good enough? Who can be righteous enough? Who, who can have enough wisdom to figure out all these mysteries? To not talk behind his people's back. To not take offense to it when people actually talk about you behind your back, right? How, how do we get to this point? And he's now he's just starting to go down the rabbit hole of understanding that, yeah, it's, it's getting hopeless for Solomon and how he's thinking about this. He can't get deep enough to understand how things work. This vanity of life he's been talking about, there's a wall he keeps running into that he can't figure out, and that wall is sin. He actually mentioned, he only mentions sin twice in this whole book, and one of the times is in this passage. He's, he's, he's starting to get there to understand sin is the reason and the cause for this, but we know that he never completely makes it to the gospel. He never does. We're still not done. Verse 25, he wants us to continue to think more deeply about sin, and this time uh, tempta- he brings temptation into it. He said, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He gives us another illustration of the madness. Now, before we read verse 20, so this is one of those ones, it's like, Solomon, like, this, this is weird. Like, this seems like, this seems, but think about who wrote this, right? This is a man who had, had over a thousand women, wives and concubines, the scriptures tell us, right? This is not a guy we look to to give us wisdom on relationships or on how to treat the opposite sex, right? So, um, know that before we go into what's, what he's about to say. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her. This is key. This is, this is good wisdom. He who pleases God escapes temptation, in this case, sexual sin, but the sinner is taken by her. Again, this is written by a man who had all these experiences with women, right? So he's going to use women in these examples of being tempted. It makes sense. If it was flipped, if this was a woman writing this and they had a thousand men as husbands and concubines, she would be using men in the same situation, okay? So this is why he's using women in this situation, right? He had a problem when it comes to uh, women and obviously self-control, right? Um, Another viewpoint that people may think when he's writing this is is in, in 
in, in Proverbs, when Solomon's writing, he often personifies wisdom. You, if you remember, he uses lady wisdom and lady folly. He personifies uh, 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 um, wisdom and folly in the female language. So some people think that may be what he's doing, but most commentators think that's not where he's going because that's, that's not the language he's been using in Ecclesiastes up to this point. So I think we probably have to take the first interpretation, which Solomon's talking about sexual sin. He's telling us to flee from it. Don't get caught up in the snares. Don't get caught up in the ways and be tempted in this way like he was. Maybe he's reflecting back and being remorseful. Maybe he's not. We don't really know. Again, Solomon's just pouring it out here. Um, And this can be said of any sin to flee it, but especially sexual sin. The Bible speaks to this in other places as well. Flee sexual sin. You may not have, you may not think, I don't have a thousand men or women in my life. Well, you can on a screen, right? You can in your imagination. So we don't need to, again, put ourselves above Solomon too high here and look down and think, I, I'm, not, I'm not him. We need to be humble enough to say, is this me? Am I, am I doing this in other ways? Um, verse 27, it gets worse. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. He's still searching, which my soul has sought repeatedly. He's, 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 he's wrestling with this deep down. He uses that word soul. But I have, found, I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So, again, it's like Solomon. Like, seems like you're throwing women under the bus here. You, found, you can't find any among women, but one among men you did find. So it's like why, like, why did he write this, right? Did he just have his heart broken? Is he thinking about that one woman that broke his heart, and now he's just, like, making this big, sweeping, angry, angry statement about this? Well, we know that he didn't find one righteous man, because in verse 20, he just said none is righteous. There's none righteous. So if you interpret it using that, he can't mean, okay, I actually, actually found a righteous man, right? So we're all unrighteous in that way, but you could also say that Solomon is putting his womanizer hat back on, and he's just angry. He's just an angry man reflecting back on his life. Um, some commentators think there's some hyperbole in this. Like oftentimes in Proverbs, there's these big, sweeping, um, dramatic statements to try to get a point of wisdom across if you read Proverbs. So really, there's, there's a lot of, um, it's a, l- a little bit up in the air of why Solomon went this far into this illustration. But we know from knowing who Solomon is and probably the pain at the end of his life, hopefully with some rumors, thinking back the pain that comes with having a thousand concubines and wives and not just, you know, one wife, not having the biblical sexual ethic, right? Like this, this, this brings issues, this brings problems, which is why he kind of includes this in this chapter where he's talking about sin. But bottom line, as we come to the end of this, that wisdom is hard to find and sin has affected everything for worse. In verse 29, he writes this, See, this alone I have found. So this I know. This, this is, I've come to this conclusion, that God made man upright. Going back to creation here, Genesis 1 and 2. He made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is Genesis 3 language, right? You have the serpent coming into the world. He's the, the master schemer, pulls Adam and Eve into his scheme. They sin, and now sin comes pouring into the world, and it has affected everything. And good news, it will... First off, Solomon, we, if we think in the terms of the, the creation fall kind of part of that narrative, 
It seems like in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is stuck in this creation fall loop. He's saying, God has made man this. I think this is the way we should go, but it's not working out that way. What's wrong? Well, we need better wisdom. Let's go back to creation, the way God called us to live. Let's try this wisdom thing. Well, it's not working. Back to the fall. And he just keeps ping-ponging back and forth because he's not living on this side of redemption and the cross and the resurrection, which we are. We have the benefit of, again, looking back through this, through the person and work of Jesus. Further down David's genealogy, way past Solomon, is Jesus. Paul says of him in 1 Corinthians that it became wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. All of these things he is for us. He didn't sin, not even with his lips, not even his communication, the way Solomon has laid out this example of sin of our communication. He treated the opposite sex in an appropriate way. He didn't have a thousand wives. He didn't have a thousand concubines, right? He treated women with gentleness, respect, tenderness. He empowered them. They were better from, for being around him as they left Jesus. This is the way he did it. He did this in every area. And then God poured his wrath out on Jesus to bring us back into relationship with God. Paul gets, Paul, I, I love Romans 5 and paralleling it with this chapter in Ecclesiastes because I think it runs on parallel, um, kind of tracks here. Listen to verse 12. And you almost like, Solomon, I wish you had this, right? I wish you had this in front of you when you were writing this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, you say one man and woman couple, Adam and Eve, and death through sin. So death comes through sin. Sin came in and then death came in, right? Notice the order there. And so death spread to all men because all sin. And now Solomon's reflecting on this. He's looking at the world and he's like, Why? Why is it like this? Because of verse 12. Paul just gave us the answer here. But, Paul says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to Adam and Eve. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. God's grace. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that. Listen to the logic here that Paul uses. For if because of one man's trespass, just a man, just Adam and Eve, right? They're just humans. Through their trespass, death and sin has had this much effect. All the things Solomon's getting into, if if it's had that much effect on us, imagine, Paul thinks, um, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the God man, the perfect man, the one that we're united to now if we have faith in Christ. How much more is offered to us in Jesus than is affected by sin? And we've been looking at this book through Ecclesiastes, this, you know, over halfway through this book, and we're seeing sin after sin after sin. I want us to be reminded that if you are in Christ and you have faith in Jesus, how much more do we have in God's grace than Solomon is wrestling with in his sin? So much more. If the power of sin through Adam and Eve has affected our world so much, imagine the goodness and the power and the, the blessing that we have in the person and work of Jesus. In verse 18, Paul finishes here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's logical here. The pain and hardship Solomon speaks of in Ecclesiastes came through the world through one man, 
how much more in grace and mercy we have in that. Peace, love, healing, redemption, wholeness, all the things that is offered to Jesus to counteract the things that Solomon has been talking about in Ecclesiastes, we have in Jesus. We have hope. We see the fall. We see creation. We see the fall. We see the redemption in Jesus. And we await the restoration or reconciliation. This is the part that we haven't experienced yet. This is the part we have to exercise faith and hope and trust that the Bible is true and that Jesus will return one day. And all the things that Solomon's speaking about, all of them will be made right. The new heavens and the new earth will be, will be, um, will, will be given and, and, and will, be, um, will be instituted and we won't experience any brokenness, pain, confusion, all the things Solomon speaks about. If you're following Jesus and you're in the middle of one of these crooked seasons that Solomon speaks about, the only hope you may have is to look up your eyes, pick your eyes up to the horizon, and remember that it's going to get better. Not guaranteed to get better in this life. It's not. The Bible doesn't guarantee that. But if you're in Christ, it will get better eventually, either when you pass away or Jesus returns. Sometimes that's all the hope we have when life when, we're, when our lives are crooked, when we're going through one of those seasons. So again, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So what do we do with this? A couple of quick application points to, to help you guys leave here um, thinking about these things. Um, we need to live in reality. I think the world needs more of this, right? To call things how they are and have the courage to say this is the answer or this is how we see the world playing out, right? Number one, we need to live in a reality where we fall short, we need to recognize our sin. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus, who've been Christians for a long time, we need to remember what we've been saved from daily. That's why we say repentance is a good thing, right? Repentance is just remembering that you fall short and you need God's grace every day. This is repentance. We need to be people of repentance. This needs to be like breathing in and breathing out, right? We repent. We remember we fall short and we're in desperate needs of God's grace every single day. And that produces a kind of humility in us it produces a kind of character in us that bleeds into point number two. We need to live life, we need to live in the reality of our broken and painful world. We need to have our eyes open to seeing the pain, to seeing the oppression, to seeing all the things that sin brought into the world. We need to be open and honest about those things. And in the love that we now have, that we've experienced in Christ, we can face, we can take head on the crookedness, the wickedness that we experience in this world. We can be agents of love, agents of peace, agents of reconciliation. But it only comes out of a place where you know you've been forgiven. You know you've received grace. That it's not everybody out there that's the problem. No, we start with ourselves. We say, no, I'm the, I'm the problem. I'm going to address this with God myself. And that opens us up and gives us the kind of love and motivation to then help others in this broken and crooked world. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. So moving to a time of communion, I pray that through these elements and, and, and being able to, to look and to see and to touch these things, that you would, um, you would help us. That if we are in this room and we need to be comforted, I pray that you would comfort us. If we're in this room and we need to be convicted, you would convict us. And we trust that you'll meet us where we're at as we um, observe communion now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.